Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Alex Taylor is the Chief Operating Officer of Upward Projects, a Phoenix-based hospitality group with a cult-like following. Alex was previously serving as the Senior Vice President for the Kimpton Hotel and Restaurant Group, overseeing the $400 million restaurant and bar division with 80 unique concepts in 22 states and three countries. Alex graduated from Duke University and also earned an MBA from the University of Texas at Austin. He started his career as a Phoenix-based regional manager for Starbucks before relocating to Las Vegas to serve as the director of food and beverage for the Mandalay Bay Resort. Next, Alex was named the executive director of food and beverage for Wynn Resorts Encore before leaving to launch his own two-unit restaurant concepts in Las Vegas and Austin, all of which gave Alex invaluable experience in the power and perils of company culture. Alex, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. I love every single brand you've been affiliated with, with the exception oh. of with the exception of none. I had a, a mentor years ago who was being groomed as CEO at Starbucks, uh, probably 18 years ago, and, and I've always been fascinated with that brand. I've loved the um, the stuff that Steve Wynn and his group did, and I love what you guys are doing with Upward. I. I've known a couple of the founders, uh, one more well than the other, but and I've eaten at one of your brands, Postino's, so many times. I think I know the menu cold. So, looking forward to learning all about this. Yeah, that's that's great to hear. And I've been a experiential based person my entire adult life, and uh, I think that the companies I've worked for reflect that attitude that I have as far as I, I pursue jobs, not for escalating responsibility or title or pay, but because of how it's going to enrich my life and my family's life uh, beyond the beyond the obvious. And that's, I think, why I've been drawn to brands that are so, so unique and special. Yeah. Certainly I, I, I'm here at Upward. Well, I love the, the combination of your entrepreneurial experience, some of your corporate experience, um, and, and then just even kind of combining it with some of your uh, your MBA. It's funny. I actually saw what I think the only college basketball game I've ever seen was the Duke Blue Devils playing against UNLV Rebels 25 years ago in Las Vegas. Oh, what a what a great rivalry that was! And as a UNLV fan, prior to going to Duke, I was heartbroken uh, when now my Duke Blue Devils destroyed uh, the greatest basketball season and greatest basketball team of all time. Uh, when they beat the undefeated running rebels in 1991. Yeah, that was around, that was around when I was there too. Cause I think I was there around 92 or 93. Cause I'd actually had never heard of Duke and I bumped into a friend traveling backpacking around the world and he was wearing a Duke ba- uh, baseball cap and he told me all about Duke and that's how I kind of got enamored with the, the team. So like legendary schools, legendary brands. Can you, can you walk us back or first off, tell us a little bit about upward and what, um, you know, what the restaurants are that you guys oversee or what the, the brands are within that group. So we understand, and maybe even give us some scope on terms of, you know, number of employees, number of locations, et cetera. So we can understand what you're running. Sure. Uh, well, Upward has been around for 18 years. It started with Postino and Arcadia, uh, which was the old Arcadia post office. Um, so Craig DeMarco, uh, one of our two founders was returning from a trip from Italy, walking down the street, talking to his wife, Chris, about how much they enjoyed 
the easy wine cafe lifestyle that they enjoyed in Florence and were walking by the post office and basically just said, we should do that. We should do it right here. <laughs> and uh, they really bootstrapped it and made it, made it happen at that one location. And then had a lot of success with some other restaurants as well. that are not part of the upward family. Uh, and it was in 2008 that uh, one of their most dedicated and hard nosed employees, Lauren Bailey, uh, inquired about buying the old tables and chairs that they were switching out for a new FF&E package. And that led to a conversation between her and Craig about how Lauren wanted to start her own restaurant. And they partnered on the second Postino, which opened in 2009 on Central Avenue. And really the rest is history from there. They went on to do multiple brands with Windsor and then Joyride and Fe Joyride Taco House and Federal Pizza continued to open more Postinos uh, across Arizona and then our first outside of the state of Arizona in Denver four years ago, hmm. expanded to Texas a little over a year ago, about 18 months ago, and just opened our second there as well. Uh, and the really kind of big event beyond the original formation and partnership in 2009 and that growth was our purchase and partnership with Brentwood Capital uh, out of California, which is a private equity fund that has really supercharged our growth is what's pushing us to grow into new states. That's super cool. All right, so so Lauren was, I guess, came in as, did she come in as originally the COO or as a partner with Craig to help expand it? You know, I, I that's a good question. I don't know what her title or if they even cared about titles at that, that time. Yeah. She, was a part, she was a partner uh, on the second restaurant, on the second Postino. So Craig was very successful with the first one and then had some other partnerships and some other restaurants. LGO, uh, Le Grand Orange was the, the, the big one right next door to Postino Arcadia, but that was a different partnership group. Um, and then it was really just Lauren saying, hey, I'd love to buy these tables and chairs. And Craig <laughs> saying, why? Well, I want to start my own restaurant company. And Craig being who he is about you know spreading good vibes, and it wasn't about keeping it all for himself. And he had kind of a lot of things going on. said, well, why don't we do another Postino together uh, instead? And Lauren was surprised that he would invite that partnership, not uh, just because why share? And uh, and they created this incredible partnership that has been has endured for the last ten years and gotten incredibly strong and built this phenomenal culture here at Upward. So Lauren was an employee; she was uh, really one of their kind of badass bartender and and someone that they really counted on and wanted to continue to do business with. I've and I've been really fortunate over the last five years, having lived part time in Scottsdale. I've actually been able to meet Lauren and and Craig both over the years, and both extraordinary people. Both really seem to be very strong in culture and caring about people, both on the customer and employee side. And it's not like they're doing it for profit. It's just who they are. It's how they're wired. Would you? Is that kind of accurate? Yeah, the profit will come, uh, yeah. especially the business we're in, uh, because we're selling. We're not just selling food, or and a lot of people say we're. They talk about the experience that that's ultimately what selling. That's true, but you're really you're trying to create an emotion in people. Uh, with when people come to eat and dine, and in any restaurant, you want them to come in feeling more positive energy than um, when they're walking out the door than they came in. So we want we want people who are feeling better and more positively about the world and themselves when they walk out of a restaurant. And that's pretty easy directive that's our mission is we make people feel good and so if we focus on and that's our guiding light is does this make people feel good with everything we do then we're going to be doing a great job and ultimately people are going to want to come back and they want to spend more time with us because we make them feel good when they do spend time with mm. us so 
It's an easy mission to follow. It's an easy guiding light. So often lost in some of these complex and convoluted missions of, of all kinds of different companies. Uh, but for us and for Craig and Lauren especially, what they cared about was making people feel good. And that's translated throughout our company culture and to our guests. It's awesome. I want to go back to kind of almost the beginning, kind of your, your MBA will start there. And then I want to go into Starbucks a little bit and I'm going to, I'm going to guess, did you, were you kind of finishing your MBA around the mid nineties, like 94, 95? No, I, uh, I graduated from Duke in 97 okay. and then I thought I was going to be an attorney. Uh, cause I had all my life, I had, had been, I thought myself and been told I was going to be an attorney and then judge. And then ultimately my mother decided I was going to be a Supreme court judge. <laughs> um, and then, so I went to work for a law firm in Washington, DC. After I graduated, I worked for one of the kind of white shoe law firms there as a legal assistant. The idea being that I want to take a year off and kind of enjoy myself but at the same time, get ready for the LSATs. Learn. I had heard that doing research and writing briefs was the hardest thing about your first year of law school, just understanding the language and methods. So I could get paid to learn how to be successful in law school and have some fun while I was in DC. And, uh, you know, it was a great year. I really enjoyed it. I liked the work a lot, but I realized that I did not want to be in the industry primarily because the industry was full of passionless people, meaning right. that there were some people that really enjoyed the law and wanted to get dedicate their life to it. But quite frankly, the majority were people that fell into it and didn't know what to do with their lives. I uh, kind of, I often make a joke that, you know, that a lot of people are lawyers because they weren't smart enough to be doctors. <laughs> and, uh, and it's, and there are people that truly love the law and they're truly great at it. And then unfortunately there are a lot of people that fell into it or did it because they didn't know what else to do and they wanted an advanced degree. Yeah, so. it's interesting. I, I grew up in an era just before you, probably I graduated college about 10 years before that or eight years before that. And I was always being told to be a lawyer as well. And I think it was a lot of my entrepreneurial skills, a lot of my leadership traits that was pointing towards law, mostly because being an entrepreneur wasn't really cool then. And, and being an entrepreneur almost didn't become cool until around 99, 2000. I almost wonder whether if you'd been five years younger, if you had been pointed in the entrepreneurial zone uh, with all of the skill sets that you've got. Yeah, I might have. I think that it was really, I had some great mentors at the law firm as I was talking about my frustrations uh, with what I was seeing in the industry. And so it was really one of the junior associates at the time, a guy named Kelly Doran, who we were talking, had like an hour conversation. And he talked about one of his uh, classmates from undergrad who went and got his MBA. And you should really think about that uh, because it sounds like you know, you have a lot of ideas and a lot of drive to do different things. It doesn't mean that you have to do the law, um, you know, and he said, and he had a lot of guys that did law that ended up in the business field. So um, I think it was, uh, I had some great mentors. I was very fortunate. And, uh, and then of course I, I was able to realize what I did not want to do. So it was, it was a fantastic year, year well spent in, in Washington, DC. What do you think you used from, from your MBA program that you still use today? What did you pull from that that would still be useful? And, and what do you think you would throw away from your MBA program that maybe has bogged you down? You know, I don't know what I would throw away. I think the nice thing was that I took, uh, that I did have a, a good four years between my undergrad and my graduate degree. I actually did Starbucks mm -hmm. right before my, um, right before my MBA. Okay. Uh, so I, um, I think that, Certainly, 
what I take with me every day. And I was on an entrepreneurial track at, at Texas when we had a fantastic entrepreneurial school at the time. And it was all case-based. And it was about, I mean, you went to battle every day in those case classes. And you had to have your ducks in a row. You had to have all your analysis done, your spreadsheets ready. You would maybe get to make one comment. You were scored in the class on the kind of the, the validity, not just whether it was right, but whether it wasn't in, incisive, whether or not it moved the conversation forward, whether it was back with data. Mm. And you knew what your score was. Wow. I mean, you got three comments and it was a big deal. Um, but you could also get scored down. If you said, if you spoke three times, but they were not additive, then you could actually lose points for the semester. And uh, it was just a hand-to-hand combat every day. And it was not theoretical. I mean, it was real. You really had to have your stuff together and you had to think critically. And I think I leaned into it. I had a natural um, tendency and draw towards that type of thought and discussion. But I really liked it to help shape me as far as cutting through the clutter and being able to problem solve. It really honed that skill for me. Interesting. So then, you, so then you were actually at Starbucks in that regional manager role, right in the heyday of the startup of the growth of Starbucks. Yeah, I was, and I was a roving manager, meaning that I would be. <clears throat> we were we were developing the Southwest region, and and it was at the time when I got there it was. Just in Arizona, I think it was eight or 10 stores. Sure. And then we grew it and we were growing a store a week. And so it was Nevada, New Mexico, and Arizona was the Southwest region that they were, they were growing. So I would get tossed around to different stores when first problem solving and then help more. I'd help open a store. Awesome. I got placed at a store, our first build that we, our largest build that we had done in, um, in all of Arizona was at the Kirlin Commons when Kirlin was first getting built. It was us, a P.F. Changs, and a Crate and Barrel, uh, three wow. open stores at Kirlin Commons. Wow. That was fine to me, and that, that's what I opened for them. Interesting. Now, did you bump across one of my mentors? Who he? This is a guy who mentored me every month for 18 months, a guy named Greg Johnson at Starbucks. God, that sounds familiar. He I, didn't, was, I don't know. He was, yeah, he was SVP operations and um, at one point ran all of operations globally for Starbucks. But I think he was, I think he might have been more Northeast um, or California might have been his regions back in the, in the mid 90s. No, I had my, I had a district uh, director, Eric Pruard, who's actually still here. And I haven't, since I've been back, I had have not gotten back in touch with him. He's still with Starbucks. And then uh, my regional vice president, Rhonda, I forget her last name. She was oversaw um, all the Southwest region that was being developed at the time. But I love my time at Starbucks. Uh, In all honesty, I would uh, still, I would still consider being with Starbucks, but the, the kind of end result would be in Seattle and, and you can yeah. tell if you look at the, if you apply the weather to where I've lived, uh, I like warm weather or where yeah. I've lived in work. I mean, the coldest I've gotten is DC uh, and I would go no further north than that. So I like the sunshine and I don't like gray skies or rain. I noticed, I noticed that trend. That was actually when I met um, Greg originally. I was dating Howard Schultz's nanny in 1994, his kid's nanny in 94 when I was living in Starbucks or in Seattle and Greg uh, was living in Seattle at the time as well. I was a, a decade or lifetime ago. All right. So biggest, biggest skill that you pulled out of Starbucks then other than clearly like just the openings and the openings and the openings and that crazy fast pace, what kind of skills do you think you pulled from that that you carry with you today? 
I would say the obvious, the most obvious skill, and the reason I was drawn to Starbucks from my prior, from my first real big professional job in, in hospitality, which was in Washington D.C. Um, after I left uh, the law firm, I ran a sushi club and lounge, which we opened in '98, and was fantastic. And we got payback in three months. It was bananas, balls to the wall, just busy all the time, making money hand over fist. But they were, it was owned by club owners, and they had no systems no ways of stamping things out and saying, how can we replicate this and make more money? And that's what I learned at Starbucks. You know, mm-hmm. the number one skill was how do you systematize, uh, replicate, maintain a company culture all at the same time because scaling scaling a system or a way of doing things is easy. Scaling a culture is very difficult. And their ability to do that and get participation and buy-in uh, across the company. I mean, we were still- It was amazing. Yeah, I mean, it was in 2000, you still had a phenomenal culture. And I would say even now, if you consider the size, that it's virtually impossible to think that they could skip, that they could keep the quality of the culture today with the size of the company. So I think that that's the number one thing I took from from it. Number two uh, is that they really, they learned so much from the store level. So it was all about systems and it was heavily regimented, but they never shut down creativity from stores. And that's where the biggest innovations came from. The most obvious and most famous is Frappuccino, which was invented at the store level by people really? breaking rules in 1996. Yeah, yeah, Frappuccino was invented in Southern California by a barista that broke the rules and went against the grain and kind of did it on the, the DL. And uh, ultimately, the district manager stopped complaining when they got feedback when from the guests who said how incredible it was. And it, you know, they went from pariah to uh, panacea because that's what it was the frappuccino that solved the seasonality issue. Oh, did it ever? Yeah. And really, I mean, and launched into the stratosphere without solving for seasonality on coffee, um, it would have never been where it is today. I think it also bridged the age gap. It also took the age gap from parent down to kid when the 12 year olds were going in there trying for a frappuccino when their mom was getting their double latte, right? No doubt. I mean, we were we were right at the start of that, uh, you know, where at first, the, you know, the decaf frappuccinos didn't launch at the same time that regular caffeinated frappuccinos did. And uh, so you would see it where kids would come in and it was it was weird. It was not culturally acceptable for kids to come in and have coffee. And it was the frappuccino that made it culturally acceptable and and really bring it to that expand that demographic. Okay, last Starbucks question before I leapfrog right up to um, to upward again. Am I am I imagining things, or do I remember this correctly? That around ninety three, ninety four, when you went into the store to order your your latte, it was based on what you ordered was the way they turned the cup, like upside down, frontwards, backwards, two cups was how they remembered what you'd ordered. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, they started I, writing on, do you remember that or my, no, I, that was before my time. I can tell you that, uh, our point of pride in the Arizona market is that we were the ones that came up with the idea and piloting, uh, saying people's names. Oh, wow. Uh, that's amazing. So, and so we, you know, as always, you would say, if you remember in those <laughs> mid nineties, late nineties, they would say double tall latte and, you know, people would, two people would go up and grab the drink and say, well, who, whose is this? Yeah. Um, and so it was, we were allowed to pilot it in the Arizona market of asking people their names and you got pushback. It was interesting. Um, you know, why do you need my name? And there was some people that were a little bit hostile to it. Um, and so that's obviously gone, gone away now. And it's just part of everyday life, whether you're at a Starbucks or Chick-fil-A, they want your first name. 
Well, uh, but it's interesting but, because they lost that system for about seven or eight years. And then when Howard came back in around 10 years ago, around 2009, 10 to kind of rebuild after the crash again, he insisted that we get the names back in again as a way to connect with people. Yeah, I think a lot went away uh, from the from kind of the founding culture and vision as they as they scaled and moved into airports and supermarkets and and everywhere else they they took away a lot of those personal touches and sure it made more money but they had definitely started to lose their way mm-hmm. and it's nice it's nice to see the reinvestment in that where it might it might make you a little bit slower be slightly more costly um or take more training but it's worth it well and, and so at upward i think i love where the the genesis was um you know craig and his wife in Flor- uh, where'd you say Florence or um, Florence in Florence, yes. walking through Florence and going to the cafes and loving that kind of that kind of meandering lifestyle and just the the relaxed environment and the real connection with food and um, is that how how do you keep that as part of what you're doing as you grow because it's still there when when you go into a Pastinos today as one of your brands that I know the best it's how how are you focusing on keeping that kind of core. You know, it's something that, how do we do it now is we, we muscle through it for lack of a better term, meaning that, uh, you know, we're on, we are, I am on site. My, my right hand, Eric Henderson is on site. Lauren Bailey is on site during training, doing orientations, interacting. We're very in touch with the hiring process to make sure that we're hiring people that embrace our culture, that get and appreciate what we're about and why we're about it. Uh, and what we're figuring out right now and what we're going through the process is, is how do you scale that culture and how do you, because that is an un, muscling through it is unsustainable when you're, when you're opening, you know, five to six stores a year, it's just not something that we'll be able to do. So our focus has really been on, for lack of a better term, finding out how do you institutionalize those cultural touch points and write mm. them down and, and, and communicate them in a way. And, you know, it's, it's really, it's not. It's not like it can't be done. It has been done. It's been done well, whether you're talking about Nordstrom's, Costco, Starbucks. These are, there are these places that have been able to continue this culture, uh, that whatever their culture is, and, and scale it. But it really takes thoughtfulness about where do you invest? What traditions do you invest in? Um, it goes way beyond benefits, and it goes towards traditions, training, um, and all the things that are kind of the the sacraments of what is what makes your cultural true culture truly special. And do you train the employees on that at Upward or when they come into each of the individual um, restaurants? Do you, or do you actually train them on the core kind of DNA of the company as well, or do you just focus on each of the individual brands? The first the first three days of training is very culturally focused. Yeah. Uh, before you get into the actual nuts and bolts of how to do your job. Uh, the first two are virtually all culture and what we're about. We have our five values. We don't, um, they don't sit in a book or on a wall somewhere. We talk about them constantly. We are driven by them. Uh, we talk about leaning at one of our values, authentic and humble. And when there's, when people aren't saying what they're feeling, we say so, or you can tell if they're holding back. We'll say, we need you to, I need you to lean into being authentic and humble right now and tell me what you're really thinking. Or, uh, you know, when, when someone's making promises that they're not keeping, we'll reference act with integrity because you might have the highest level of integrity, but when you're not hitting a deadline, it's 
there's another value called getting extraordinary results. It's not that you're failing to get extraordinary results. You're failing to act with integrity because you're not following through on a promise that you made. Uh, and it's part of our daily discussion. Uh, it's, it's in our executive meetings. It's in our management meetings. We are constantly referencing our values and not because we're telling ourselves to do so. It's because those values truly resonate with us. Mm. And, um, and, it's, and it's a great way to keep us focused and help us make decisions. I'll, I'll give you one specific example. Um, we were a few months back, uh, the whole Michael Jackson HBO thing came out. There was great discussion and the, it, it made, very quickly made its way to the executive table. What are we going to do? There's a lot of Michael Jackson music in our restaurants. We love the music. It, it's very positive and upbeat. It's very cool. Um, and it makes sense with a lot of our brands. Um, and then the whole part about that, we're big patrons of the art. Lauren in particular, we have a lot of art in our room. and We're struggling with censoring art over the artist. Um, and did we want to get into that? And then at the end of the day, while there was, there was discussion on both sides of that, the decision was made based on our mission. And it's like, people will start talking about that documentary. That documentary does not make people feel good. We should not play that music because even yeah. if you're a fan of the music, eventually that conversation will come up. So based on our mission statement, we make people feel good. We're not going to play that music in our restaurant. Yeah. Um, and that's what helped guide our that, that mission statement helped guide our decision on that. It's interesting because you're right. Even even if you're a huge Michael Jackson fan, you love his music. And I grew up in that era, so I still have that feel good to it is if someone else brings up the negative side that they're feeling from it, it then takes me into the wrong place. Exactly. So, even if you, even if you like, even if I love it, that's right. As soon as you start talking about that, you will say, yeah, I don't want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that's and interesting. So it feel good. And that's how we made the decision. And we make decisions like that all the time based on our values. And that trickles down into the training. So that's what we talk about during training. That's, what we reference uh, when we reference why we do things, we will reference how it's rooted in one of our values. Yeah. I, I love that. So you, I've always said that you have to have a maximum of four or five core values. You nail that with five. I've always said that core values have to be short, easy to understand phrases, not single words. You nail that. I talk about the fact that you have to fire people if they break them. I am sure. And I want to ask you about that, but I'm sure you do where you guys take it to the next level is you're always talking about them. Like you're, you're referring to them. You're pointing to people in the direction of it. When you're, when you're giving people constructive criticism or praise, you're kind of aligning those with the values consistently. That was a fairly Starbucks thing too, was it not? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing about Starbucks is that that <clears throat> mission was rewritten a few times uh, early on. And, you know, I can't, I went through two mission statements, um, but it was oftentimes, and you have to understand that Starbucks was able, not only did they have a great culture and, and treat people really well and really invest in training. But they were the first to offer benefits at 20 hours, you know, so they, a lot of their culture and competitive advantage in the labor market was based on their benefits package. They had two different stock programs. There was a stock buy program, a stock buying program, and there was a stock grant program. Um, and so what has become commonplace in the market was not at all. And so that, um, either single mother or, you know, that could drop her kids <clears throat> off and work five hours, four hours, five days a week uh, while the kids were in school and then come back that she was getting benefits for herself and then she can buy benefits for the kids. And, and to be doing that in 1996, 97 
I mean, it was unheard. No one was doing that. Sure. 20 hours. Um, there was uh, there was tuition reimbursement program. And so they were early to the game on using benefits to differentiate and drive a culture and really communicate how much they cared. People caught up with that eventually. Companies caught up with that eventually. Um, but they had already been so entrenched and to help add to everything else they were doing with culture. Now, I don't want to talk about the food. I mean, the food at Pastino's is amazing. Your wine selection is amazing. The, the you know environment is great. Um, I'm really curious about the people side of that business where you're hiring in the restaurant space, you're hiring a lot of Gen Y, um, who are not transient, but they're, they're loyal six weeks to six months at a time for their job. Um, you know, and often even in the kind of work that they're doing, they're doing two or three shifts a week. How have you guys worked around that with that? And you have such a high, like how, how many staff roughly would one of your locations have? Uh, it depends on the size, but 80 to 100. Yeah, so 80 to 100 employees for a business is huge, right? Most companies never get past 10. 80 to 100 is huge at one location. Um, and then how many would you have on a shift, 30 or 40? Uh, no, I think at the most we would have 30. I think okay. that's why the roster count is so high because of what you just described. Yeah. So how do you, how do you manage that? How do you recruit for that? How do you retain them? Like I could sit and ask questions on this for a year. You know, I was, it's so neat when you get to work for these incredible companies and and upward projects is really a a fantastic enriching opportunity. Uh, But you get to learn so much about what draws people to the different companies for which you work and each one was different. I was surprised as I was kind of doing my my training and really getting to know the operations at the at the line level that the one of the things that our employees our line level employees reference the most certainly in the hospitality side is that they love that they can wear their own clothes. I mean mm-hmm. they love it. And you know from a from an operating standpoint or a finance standpoint like wow I don't have to buy uniforms I don't have to clean uniforms that's great. That's awesome. Um, and but no, they love that, and they can wear hats. And a lot of people, yeah, you can wear your own clothes, but you can't wear a hat. You can't, you can't wear this. You can't wear a vest. It has to conform to these very strict uniform guidelines. And beyond safety, uh, we don't have a whole lot of you know, very wide berth for our employees to wear what they want and express themselves. And I didn't realize how much they value it, but it wasn't one or two employees that said it. It is always in the top two reasons our wow. hospitality side works for us. They mention it. And that ability for self-expression through their clothes allows them to express themselves in service. We don't have any canned language. There is no, hi, my name is John. If you want to say, hi, my name is John, go say, hi, my name is John. Yeah, it's fine. No problem. But if you don't want to, don't say it. They're very loose guidelines on how you talk about the menu, how we want you to talk about it, but we want to talk, we want you to talk about the menu and what makes what makes you happy about it? There's no hi. Have you ever been to a Postino before? You don't have to say that if you don't want to say that. If you read the table and that's the vibe, and they look like they're trying to figure it out, you should ask them that question. But express yourself, and you know, as long as you're a positive human being and you're and you're empathetic towards the guest, we have very loose guidelines, and nothing is scripted for our people, and they react so well to that. They want to be here because of that autonomy that we give them in the service experience. It's not a normal restaurant gig. Um, and, and then this, the, the other big thing is, um, 
you know, obviously we're team service. And so mm. team service allows us to hire on culture more than we're hiring on skill because there's the team will help you figure it out um, if you don't have, you know, a tremendous amount of uh, dining experience. How do you how do you hire for that ability to kind of bob and weave where they can just read the table, read the room, figure it out on their own, stay within rough guidelines? How do you how do you what do you look for? What are the behavioral traits or what are you specifically looking for in the interviews to find those people? I if I had to think two things that you need to have is a curiosity and empathy. Uh, you have to be curious about people. You have to be enthused about them as they walk in and enthusiastic about why they're there and what they hope to get, what their story is. And you just have to have a natural curiosity and excitement about people in general. And then you have to be an empathetic human being. Uh, If you're not, then you're going to be terrible in any service industry. Um, I think, you know, I often use whether you're calling a cable company or anyone that you call a call center, the lack of empathy is what frustrates you the most. Sure. A telephone trait frustrates you or, the whole time frustrates you, but ultimately what truly makes someone's blood boil um, in a service experience is the lack of empathy. Mm. Um, and so I think that that, you know, and those, those are conversational, those are conversational interview questions. You know, tell me about a time when, tell me about a time where you felt like this, tell me about a time where you made someone feel like that. Um, and if it doesn't come naturally or they, they're struggling and say, wow, I really can't think of anything, then they're not, they don't have that empathy. Um, so those are not hard, uh, personal traits he's out during an interview process. For sure. All right. I would be completely remiss if I did not ask about your experience working with the wind group and Mandalay Bay is, um, and by the way, I apologize for your food cost. My brother used to eat at the buffet there at Mandalay Bay, and I'm sure your average food cost was up extraordinarily when he would walk in. Um, what was it like working within that organization? Steve Wynn is known for being a complete perfectionist and demanding perfection amongst the entire organization. I don't think that would escape on the food side. No, we're, we were generally Steve's, or I say we, I mean the royal we. Food and beverage traditionally in, in his career in Las Vegas was traditionally the whipping boy for mm-hmm. Steve uh, because there's so many variables and there's there. And so inevitably, as opposed to say table games or turning hotel rooms, there's a lot more variables in food and beverage and restaurants than there are in, um, than in some of the other areas of expertise within a hotel and casino resort. So uh, oftentimes it would draw Steve's ire. And also it's so, you're so passionate about, um, and it's so visceral uh, food and beverage and, and mm-hmm. how you connect with people through that hospitality experience, specifically in food and beverage, is that you people in general have a visceral reaction. So you take someone like Steve and uh, it's even more amplified. I'll, I'll say to my, um, to, in my experience with Steve uh, was just phenomenal. I, I practically ran to work once I parked my car, not because I was scared and said, oh, oh, I got to get in the office because Steve. No, I ran to work because I was that excited to get my day started. And, and I mean it, I, I literally, walked fast so i yeah. might have not gone and sprinted but i walked very fast when i parked my car and i couldn't wait to get in the office i couldn't wait to start my day it was ten thousand volts every single day i got to ha- i had a dotted line to steve because we were building encore and so i did a lot of meetings with him and a guy named roger thomas who's still the head of women design and development uh while we were building encore and those interactions 
if you had your stuff together, if you knew what you were talking about, if you just, just like we talked about earlier, like if you go in for a case class and all your ducks in a row, you have all your information, you interact with Steve, even if you're delivering him bad news and even if you've made a mistake or misjudged something, it was no big deal. Yeah. I mean, just he, he, some people describe him, you know, really as a vicious leader <laughs> and I've worked with him for a long time, decades. I never found him to be that way. Um, he didn't suffer fools. And, uh, and I really enjoyed my time in that organization. I really enjoyed it. There was a flip side. There were, that organization was full of a lot of yes men who were conflict avoidant and didn't want to challenge Steve. It's ultimately led to the downfall of, of his leadership there. And, mm. and no one checked him. And uh, not no one, but the, unfortunately it was. <laughs> not uh, enough. Yeah, not enough. And, um, and it led to his downfall. And so, yeah, I, but my experience was truly phenomenal. Uh, one of my favorite bosses I've ever worked for. When he, he's a legend in the, in the whole Las Vegas scene from the number of, of restaurants or, or not restaurants, but the hotels that he built is extraordinary. It has, has a biography been written on him? There's a, there's a couple unauthorized ones out there that are good reading. Any, uh, any good one? No, no, there hasn't no. been. Yeah. And, and I, think based on the current situation, there will be one, uh, at least not anytime soon. I, you know, it was very difficult for me to leave MGM Resorts because they'd been so good to me over five and a half years of my career and uh, had really treated me very, very well. And I'd always had friends in the Win organization and it was always a lateral move mm -hmm. whenever they made an offer. And it was like, well, we're Win, And that wasn't enough for me. But the opportunity to design, build, and open with Steve, the, the greatest um, innovator in the history of that city, possibly the greatest resort innovator in the history of the world, uh, was just too much to pass up. It's something I can do that can never be taken away. It's an experience that was once in a lifetime, and I'm so glad I did it. Was that, you were part of opening Mandalay or opening Encore? Opening Encore. Yeah, so it's, I, it's I, crazy. I like Running amazing. Mandalay Bay. Yeah, yeah amazing, right? Phenomenal. All right. Um, so Upward, did you sell to private equity? Did you sell a portion to private equity or to VCs? What was the transaction? Well, it's a brand, it's a brand new entity. So okay. there's, there's, it wasn't, the transaction was, you know, technically a sale. And then of course the way the existing investors either uh, got cashed out or, you know, whether the, the percentage of cash to equity um, you know, that's basically how it was done. It wasn't a, you know, people are still in it. Right. Okay. Like, so, and, and so I'm curious on that transition. So how has the company changed? Cause you came in right as that was happening. What has it been good? Has it been hard? Both? It's been phenomenal. We yeah. have a phenomenal partner in Brentwood that trusts us. And I think that the fact that the numbers are good, the comps are great and we're doing what we said we were going to do, uh, really helps that if we weren't performing then perhaps it would be a really painful relationship. Nothing that I can tell or that I've been told has changed. Things have gotten better. We've been supercharged with our ability to grow. We have more clear development paths for our leaders from line level to entry level management, management to general management, general management to multi-unit, multi-unit to, um, to the lab or headquarters. The clear development paths, which perhaps weren't as well defined before. We're investing, we're able to invest in our training, invest in scaling our culture uh, it's been really phenomenal. Uh, and then we've retained the entrepreneurial spirit and kind of rogue nature of what we've always done and how we've always been. So, 
Um, you know, there's always that, there's always that feel of, oh, they're going corporate. Uh, there's nothing that we've done uh, at the store level to restrict ability to be creative or, or how we interact with our line level and, and our employee satisfaction surveys and net what we call our net promoter score reflects that. And our turnover reflects that. Our turnover uh, is beating the industry average in every single category of employee wow. uh, for the first time since we've tracked it. Wow. I mean, even in our, in our heyday, of we're the coolest place, best place to be, and we're the cool kids on the block, and uh, you know we're beating our the industry turnover, the industry turnover rate in every area. It's fantastic. Brentwood was traditionally a unless it's the same Brentwood Capital. They were traditionally a technology VC, were they not? They haven't. I you know I don't know. They have. I don't think so. They have a lot of quite a bit in the service industry. They have, whether it's dental offices that they have, they one of the largest owners of Orange Theory franchises in the country. Uh, they own a few other, they own Blaze Pizza. They were the original investor on Zoe's, on Zoe's Cafe. Uh, they own Veggie Grill. Uh, they also own Lazy Dog. So they, they, have, a, they have a nice uh, footprint in hospitality and uh, service. And then they have they have a little bit in retail. I don't think those have been as strong. Certainly not as strong as uh, some of their hospitality positions that they've taken. They've they've been phenomenal. They they understand the business, and they're just so great to work with. They have a phenomenal board with uh, really highly value additive uh, from value added from our board. I just couldn't be. I, I I'm getting spoiled. This is my first job where I'm answering to private equity. And I have my CFO partner tells me that, you know, don't get used to this because this is not how, how it normally goes. Is it Brentwood Capital? I think it's Brentwood. I think it's Brentwood Partners because there is another Brentwood. That, that's why. Okay. Yeah. That, that's what it is. Then there's a Brentwood Capital and a Brentwood uh, Partners. That makes sense. Um, okay. So, so how do you balance your time? I mean, how many, how many total locations are you guys operating? Uh, you know, it depends if you... What, what's open right now is we have 14 locations. Okay. Um, and then we have, uh, but we're opening quite a bit right now. So we're opening Colorado in three weeks, we're, which will be our second in Colorado. We're opening Tucson, which is a new market for us. We're opening that end of January. Uh, we'll be opening hopefully another in uh, Houston very soon. And, um, and then we were looking at the rest of Texas and we're, we're have quite a few LOIs signed and leases to be finalized. Texas is a big area of growth for us. Mm. Uh, we're opening a third in, in Colorado for sure. That is signed and under construction, uh, and the we're opening in, in end of March. And so, uh, we're, our focus right now is on the Arizona, Colorado, and Texas market. Texas being major focus, it can couldn't represent as much of a third of our growth um, or our total store count by the end of say 2024, 2025. And, uh, and then of course we're going to look to continue to grow throughout the Southeast and Mid-Atlantic. And you guys are, you guys, so you're running probably what, 900, a thousand employees currently? Just north of a thousand employees now. So, so just north of a thousand employees, what do you focus with them on in terms of training and ongoing development or is that situational? What do I focus on with them? What's the company? No, the company. Uh, well, because we're scaling right now, there's a we're putting a lot of effort and money into building up that training program. We've had phenomenal training. We have a great learning management system. Uh, but 
you know, was kind of a one man band for a while. And then it was mm. a, a two man band. It was a duet. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that we've, um, we've shifted that structure around a little bit and moved some people around in some seats and created an org and our structuring an organization that's going to help us scale because, uh, you know, that's again, this, the systems are easy, how you do things, supply yeah. chain can manage and figure out, um, and we can build the buildings, but training this this many people and maintaining the culture and the attitude and the feel uh, for who we are and what we're about, that all comes down to training. And that takes uh, the right people to train, the right investment, and the right systems. So um, we're taking what we have and we're working on kind of V2 of that. We aren't scrapping it. We're just really bolting on, enhancing, and then doing kind of a full scrub for tone and look and feel to make sure that's consistent with where we are as an organization right now. That's cool. You said you're uh, what LMS are you running? Just curious. World manager. We use okay. world manager right now. And it's a, it's a white label and we call it the mosh. Nice. Now, were you, um, were you guys excited to hear that the, uh, the Fox group another restaurant chain in town, were you excited to hear that they were purchased by, was it Kara foods? They were purchased by cheesecake factory. Yeah. Cheesecake uh, factory. I mean, that's gotta, sure. that's gotta help you attract some employees now. Well, we were thrilled for them. We have a great relationship with them. I mean, obviously, yes, there's, uh, you know, look, our, our head of learning and development was the head of learning and development at Fox Group. Great. And recently got added to our team. And that was a huge get because when she took over Fox Group, there were 12 stores and she took it to 80 and was part of the sale of True Food and part of the sale of um, Flower Child and some other brands and ultimately part of the sale to the, the whole shoot and match cheesecake factory. So, She's an incredible ad, uh, really gets us. The ironic part about it is that we interviewed her right before she took this, and she wanted to join us right before she took the Fox Group job, but we just weren't big enough at the time. We didn't have any stores. We couldn't afford her in our, in our G&A budget. Um, but then now the timing was right, and we're really excited to have her. But we've always had a very positive relationship with Fox, and, um, and Sam has been – really a great mentor to Lauren and friend and friend to Craig and yeah. a ton of um, best practices sharing. And we, you know, they're good. They're good friends in the industry and we can be more thrilled for, for that organization just to Sam to get a well-deserved uh, reward and the rest of the team as well for what they've built. And we're excited to see them, um, excited to see them grow. Well, I, I think mean, it's, whenever it's a merger like that, there's some fallout ability for the more nimble player to, to react. Yeah, it's good timing because you'll get a couple of their key people if they're not happy with the transition. But it's amazing to watch two really, really strong restaurant groups happening in the same city. You don't rarely see strong restaurant groups, period, in cities. And you guys, two of them really um, emerging quite nicely with multiple brands. I guess it's easy to have one brand and expand it. But to do it with multiple brands, I think, is difficult. And you guys are doing an amazing job. Alex, if we were to go back to your 22-year-old self, you're graduating from university, what word of advice would you give yourself when you were just graduating that you know, now you know to be true, but you wish you'd known earlier on. Uh, take a breath, I would say, and, <laughs> and, and walk, not run. Um, it's tough to really, when you think about the things that you've learned and how you've changed as a leader, and I have really changed over time. I don't regret some of the mistakes and some of the evolution that I made. Um, you know, it was necessary at the time. And the easiest example I can give is up and up through being a general manager, I used what I call the hammer. And, you know, it was you getting stuff done, you're either on the bus or you're under it. 
And I don't need diversity of thought because I need people that think like me, that are aligned with me. That's how we're going to get to where we're going very fast mm. and, and beat the world. And that's, that was the mentality in Las Vegas for a long time. It was an arms race in, in food and beverage. If you think about when I got there, really 2002, because um, my first job in the MGM Resorts Group was with uh, Tom Colicchio and Kraft Steak and opening up his first restaurant outside of, um, outside of Las Vegas. I mean, I'm sorry, outside of New York. And before Tom was famous, that was his first, that was his first venture was craft steak and the MGM. And the way I made a name for myself and the way I moved up quickly was by kicking butt, you know, and being, you know, just absolutely doing whatever it was I had to do to be successful. And it was only until I took over Mandalay Bay in 2006 um, that I, I was aware and I recognized that I could no longer use the hammer. I might need it once in a while, but I needed to diversify my um, skill set on how I lead people and how I get results because you can't use that when you're managing general managers. They're not going to react well to it. And I also had to embrace diversity of thought for two reasons. First, for me, the evolution was I recognized it was practical, meaning that now with the amount of people I have to work with and the amount of supervisors I need, there just weren't that there weren't that many people out there available to me that were fully aligned with who I am and how I thought. And that's how it started. And then over time, once I came to realize that, I um I started realizing the benefit of the diversity of thought and how wow, look how supercharged we are now because we have all these different ideas. And yeah, it might slow us down just a bit because we need to take more time to get fully aligned, but this diversity of thought was really important. Um, and so it's tough when I think back to that 22 year old self, because mm. if I were the leader then, um, that I'm the leader now, would I have outperformed everyone because I wasn't moving as quickly? I mean, it wasn't necessary sense. to behave the way I behaved, to lead the way I led in order to get where I needed to go. Um, so that, that's something that I always struggle with, you know, as much as I look back and I recognize and I empathize with general managers that I lead and I see myself in them, I see them struggling with that transition of only using the hammer. Um, you know, I know how they got there. I know how they got to the position they're in where they've got my attention because they're a top performer. It's because yeah. that's all they use. Yeah. Well, and you're right. I think some of that learning has to come from experience and the reflective observation, not really from the future. So, Right. Alex Taylor, the COO for Upward Projects. I really appreciate you sharing today. This was amazing. Yeah, I really enjoyed it too. Thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to seeing you here in Scottsdale at Postino or Joyride. I remember incredible. We'll, we'll be, I'll be down there and uh, say hi to Lauren and Craig for me as well. Are you? Do you work out of the Arcadia or near the Arcadia location at all? I live right next to the Arcadia location. So I live right right at the, the base of Camelback Mountain, right right off of uh, 40th and Camelback. So yeah, I'm right around the street. And then I, I work right next to Postino Central. So, uh, you know, next time you're in town, Cameron, I will, uh, I'll make sure to show up and have a glass of wine with you. I'll be over there for sure. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.